Hi, welcome to the Orthobiologics Podcast brought to you by the Center of Regenerative Orthopedics at Georgia Bone and Joint. I am your host, Dr. Trevor Turner, RMSK. Please check us out online at georgiaboneandjoint.org. Today we will be talking about our second episode, What is PRP? In this episode, we're going to discuss the definition for PRP, theories and scientific evidence about why it works, and give you just a few examples of why this issue becomes complicated when we talk about its application to orthobiologics. So loosely defined, PRP is any sample of autologous blood, meaning blood from the same person that is processed to increase the concentration of platelets over the baseline. Now later on in this episode, we'll talk a little bit about what that baseline is, but in order to understand why we would even care about using platelets in the first place, or PRP, platelet-rich plasma, We really need to dive into some of the introductions of the concepts of wound healing. Loosely, there are three phases of wound healing that we describe. And so the first one is called inflammatory, the second one is called proliferative, and the third one is called maturation. So let's break that down for just a minute. Inflammatory is kind of what it sounds like. It involves cells that rush to a site of injury and they release a lot of signals that causes inflammation. Proliferative is the second phase of wound healing, so usually after the first two to three days, once the inflammatory process begins to ramp down, then the proliferative process begins to start. And that's where the body starts to replicate or starts to copy and lay down new types of tissue. But it's really important to understand that this tissue is sort of immature. So there's a a process by which the body takes this early sort of unorganized or disorganized, I should say, tissue And it organizes it more back into the type or the structure of tissue that usually accompanies the the healthy tissue that acts the way it normally does in the body. And if we get interrupted somewhere along that process, then it ends up leading to scar tissue. So the funny thing is, is for years, doctors have been seeing people who've had orthopedic or musculoskeletal injuries, and they've had early inflammation after an injury. And so we have thought that the way to treat some of the early pain is to give people anti-inflammatories and sometimes to even give them injections with steroids. But unfortunately, blocking this early inflammatory process can actually impair us from healing the right way, and it can lead to this process process of progressive degeneration that you see in these old degenerated tendons or old degenerated joints that we sometimes have in osteoarthritis. Besides just the problem with using an NSAID or that that stands for non-steroid anti-inflammatory. So examples of that are Aleve or ibuprofen. The use of a steroid is actually somewhat toxic to our joints. So the steroids themselves, along with even the numbing medicine we use, like lidocaine, for example, is toxic to the chondrocytes. And those are cells that help produce cartilage. The other thing is doctors started looking in the literature, and it's funny because we're taught one way when we're in training and in school, and we're always taught to go back and critically examine the evidence that's sitting in front of us. And there are actually a lot of papers that note there are negative effects on joints or tendons after taking anti-inflammatories or getting steroid shots at 12 weeks. 
And we actually have evidence that shows that getting repeated injections are associated with increases in long-term pain. So we know that people can have an injury and come in and get an injection and take some medication and feel better, at least for a while. But then the question becomes, when you come back 12 weeks out and you either have return of the same pain or worsening pain, what is a physician going to offer you to get benefit? And in some cases, the injury is bad enough that it merits surgery. But in the other cases, we really have to ask, what is the right thing to give people the best long-term relief? And I've had patients say, well, even if I get relief for three months from an injection, what am I going to do? Am I going to come back every three months and get an injection for the rest of my life? And I, I almost always answer them, no, that the goal is to get people out of a certain amount of dysfunction and usually to combine that with a physical therapy program to restore the function back at the joint. But the point of orthobiologics and PRP is that we started looking at the way things heal and that's really led us to critically examine the way we treat injuries to the orthopedic or the musculoskeletal system. So for example, let's use tendons. So tendons are any structure that attaches a muscle to a bone. So after an injury occurs to a tendon, after the first inflammation occurs in the first couple of days, then that proliferation phase begins. And if you look at the way that tendons have evolved inside of the body, we find that they have their built out of the structure we call collagen. And you can see collagen actually on an ultrasound if you come in to a doctor's office and it looks like these nice white parallel lines. They're just beautiful parallel lines and that is the kind of structure that allows tendons to be tough and to be able to resist loading forces, but also kind of stretchy and elastic at the same time. Well, it turns out that we have many different kinds of collagen and tendons in the body. And so tendons that are healthy are mostly composed of a collagen called type 1, but when they're undergoing this proliferation phase, then they are filled with a much higher concentration of what we call type 3 collagen. So somewhere between 20 to 30% of tendons will be filled with type 3 collagen during this proliferative healing phase. Now that kind of tissue tends to be more elastic, meaning it's a little stretchier, but it's not as durable and it's not as strong. And so typically as proper healing occurs, the body will replace that and go back to the native concentration or closer to the normal healthy type 1 collagen. And then the, the percentage of type 3 collagen left will be somewhere around maybe 1%. But if we've gotten stuck and we're not able to fully go through that healing process, then the problem becomes we're left with the type of tendon that is disorganized, and that really is just not as strong or as durable as the type of tendons that were otherwise born with. And so that's where the idea of tendinopathy comes in. So let's shift gears for just a second and talk about joints. So if a joint gets injured and doesn't go through its normal healing process, we start to get laxity or basically the ligaments that surround the joint get loose. And as cartilage wears away, we know that there are certain things inside of that joint that contribute to further degeneration. 
And so some of those things are chemicals, those chemicals we call matrix metalloproteases. Some people call them just MMPs for short, and also cytokines, which are kind of like signaling molecules. So then all of a sudden we have these molecules in the joint that prevent it from being able to go into that third healthy phase of healing, that maturation phase. And so that is really the concept behind why orthobiologics was born. It was this notion that we want to restore the process of healthy healing in a sort of almost a, a an admission that there's certain things we can do as physicians and in science, but there's just things that we can't do as well as the human body. And so in sort of almost an admission of our own futility, we said, look, the platelet cell is kind of like a first responder. It's something that sits in the circulatory system. And as soon as you have an injury or an, a bleeding event, a platelet goes to that after some signals get released and they form a plug. And those platelets release a lot of, of chemicals to get the body to undergo that process. And so we wondered if we couldn't harvest or harness the power of these platelets and all the, the signaling factors and the growth factors and the molecules that they use in order to sort of repeat this in a place where maybe the body hasn't healed as well as it needs to. So when a patient comes in and asks me about PRP, a lot of them have questions about, well, how long has this really been around for and, and how much do we really know about it? Well, PRP, or platelet-rich plasma, was first used in the United States actually to help wounds heal after heart surgery. And also very early on in the 90s was used in uh, periodontics. So we had uh, dentists, specialized dentists, that were using them to help heal complicated wounds of the, the jaw or, or the gum lining. And so we used to have, you know, these giant machines, if you think about computers, so back in the, uh, you know, the early 80s, or, you know, we think about these computers were these gigantic machines that were mostly in laboratories and universities, and then eventually they got down to the PC or, or the, you know, laptop and smaller ones that we use now. Well, it used to be that the centrifuge, which was the essential machine that we used to create PRP, was similar. It was a giant, giant tool that mostly existed in labs until it became small enough that we could use them in clinics and more commercial applications. And so as the size of the centrifuge started to come down, we really started to see a lot of use in, in athletes in the veterinary space, and those were racehorses and, and sometimes dogs as well. And so a lot of our early literature on how we use PRP to treat athletes came out of racehorses. And then probably the biggest, you know, not, not just case study or a small series, but the biggest kind of control trial or a trial in which they, you know, they blinded the inventors and they, they got a large number of patients together to be able to submit some really good evidence for the use was back to 2006. And so Dr. Mishra, who published uh, the first kind of the seminal study on tennis elbow, he probably had the first really big paper based in the United States for how we use PRP in musculoskeletal medicine. And the research has exploded exploded since then. And then outside of just the research community, there was a lot of exposure to PRP in 2008 when Heinz Ward was playing with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he had sustained an injury to his MCL, and this is public knowledge. 
after injuring his MCL, there was some doubt about whether or not he was going to play in the Super Bowl that year. And then he actually had a PRP injection into his MCL or his medial collateral ligament and went on to win the Super Bowl with the Steelers and also become the Super Bowl MVP. So the announcer before the game actually talked about it. And then all of a sudden, a lot of people started saying, well, what is this blood injection you can get into your ligaments? And they saw you know someone who is just an incredible athlete and also probably had you know his own innate healing potential have a very successful sort of experience with this and then a lot of patients started to come into clinic and ask for it so people ask well how does prp really work i mean if i'm going to go have my blood drawn and have cells taken out of it well i want to understand why this would help me or help someone else so in our last episode in stem cells we talked a little bit about progenitor cells or cells that are kind of really early on like the ancestors that can sort of give rise to a lot of different things in the body and prp actually recruits these cells to the site and they do this in a way by releasing growth factors and cytokines, so these signaling kind of molecules that help restore this healing response that we are trying to encourage. And the other thing is that platelets have these these little kind of feet, or, or they have these little tentacles that stick out. They call them philopodia. When they activate these philopodia, they can actually kind of pull torn pieces of tissue back together, almost like a miniature suture. Like if a surgeon, instead of using a synthetic suture, we were using one that came from your own body. And so in that sense, when you build tissue back together, you tie it back together, we call those processes anabolic. And you may be familiar with that term when you talk about steroids. So there's catabolic and anabolic steroids. And whereas anabolic steroids are synthetic and can be very dangerous, PRP has been shown to be very safe because it's basically the body's own mechanisms that are acting. Additionally, it's also antimicrobial. So these these PRP, you know, these cells or these platelets actually help protect against infection. So when we've tried to really focus in on what are the things that make PRP work, it's a lot more than just these these tentacles that they have. So there's probably about 400 different chemicals in PRP, and there's probably seven growth factors that seem the most fundamental. So the first being insulin-like growth factor one, and the others, if you go down the list, are you know TGF-beta, vascular endothelial growth factor, platelet-derived growth factor, basic fibroblast growth factor, and epidermal growth factor connective tissue growth factor. So all these different growth factors, and there's argument about which ones are the most important and what exactly that they do. But we harness the power of these once we spin them down in a machine called a centrifuge. So let's talk a little bit more about that because we've mentioned a centrifuge before in the last episode when we discussed bone marrow-derived stem cell. So centrifuges differ in a couple key ways. So they have different techniques of how they separate cells in order to get PRP. And all of them use a, a increase of force over gravity, and they do this by spinning at a very, very fast speed. So they spin incredibly fast, and we measure that in terms of RPM or revolutions per minute. And most of the commercial machines on the market, when I say commercial, I mean there's a company that produces a small machine that you can either buy or you can lease and you can put it in your office on a, on a bench top to use to produce PRP. And most of the people in the industry, that's how they're doing it unless they have a dedicated laboratory with a custom type of centrifuge. 
Well, most of them average around 3,600 RPM, and that's how they spin in a rapid fashion to, to use gravity basically to separate these cells out. And so we know that these red blood cells are very heavy, and they go to the bottom of a, of a test tube or a sample tube that's put in there, and then there's a buffy coat in between, and there's a plasma layer on top. And so it's usually in that, that middle or that buffy coat layer that we're looking for the platelets. Now, some people will use a single single spin protocol, some will use double spin protocols, and it really is a matter of focusing your protocol to get what it is that you think is the most therapeutic for a patient. And so most of these machines, after they spin, they'll produce a PRP that's anywhere from three to nine times the baseline. So what does that really mean, baseline? Well, most people walking around who are healthy have anywhere between 150,000 and 450,000 platelets in their bloodstream at any given time. But the thing is, is that can vary. So even in the same patient, based on the time of day, based on how hydrated they are, based on exercise and smoking, so all of these things can affect actually how many platelets are in the system at a given time. So that makes it a little bit more challenging if you're going to say, well, I'm trying to obtain a ratio of platelets that's three times the baseline. Well, three times the baseline in one person might not be three times the baseline in another. We also know there's a concentration of other components inside of the Buffy coat, and so there's a question about whether or not you use a certain type of anticoagulant, whether you use an activator, and also how do you get the things that you want to get and get as many platelets as you need and not get the other stuff that would give you a worse outcome. So there is a lot of debate on ideal concentrations of platelets, but most of the studies that have been done in a lab, so these are basic studies, so we have to understand there's kind of differences between what's studied in a lab and then what actually happens in a person when a cell is put into a person. But these basic studies have showed that usually somewhere between one and one and a half million numbers of platelets completely are those that actually accelerate wound healing and help recruit some of these progenitor cells or some of these MSCs or mesenchymal stem cells. But there is a number at which it gets worse. So you, if you exceed 3 million platelet cells, it seems to actually inhibit or, or it seems to basically block or stop a healthy wound healing response. So again, we're trying to understand relationships between doses and appropriate amounts. And the real answer may be we don't totally know. But most of the people who are using PRP in the clinic are focusing on that number kind of between one and one and a half million. When we use a commercial centrifuge, when we use something to spin down to create PRP, there's components in there like red blood cells, there's white blood cells, there's PRP, and then there's something on top called PPP or platelet-poor plasma. And the reason that this matters is that we know that white blood cells are not actually very good for joints, but a lot of people argue that having white blood cells with PRP in tendons actually helps them heal or recover better. 
So people will use different protocols depending on what they're trying to treat. And you need to make sure that if you're going to a physician who's going to treat you with PRP, that they have a very good knowledge of what needs to be created for each type of injury. We also know that red blood cells in particular lead to cartilage death. So if there's anything that you're going to exclude, you really need to make sure that the red blood cells are out. And the reason that the white blood cells can sometimes be bad for joints is not only do they help create inflammation, but they actually have MMPs or matrix metalloprotease in them along with other things that cause inflammation. So in a joint that's already degenerated, that can be very, very painful and and also counterproductive. However, using a what people call a pure PRP or basically call a, a PRP without white blood cells in it can be can be very helpful and very potently anti-inflammatory on the inside of a joint. So there's been a lot of calls to standardize PRP formulations based on how many things are in them. And if you read the studies, this is what can make them challenging to read because one clinic's PRP may not be similar to the formulation of another. Furthermore, you can complicate the issue by using an activator. So generally, there's three kinds of activators. There's thrombin, calcium, and collagen. And these these activators can cause these platelets to more quickly release their growth factors when put into you know, put into tissue. But the question is, you know, how fast do we actually need the growth factors activated immediately to get the best therapeutic response? Do we want to do it somewhere in the middle or do we want to do it slowly and have kind of a nice sustained release of growth factors over time? Unfortunately, if you look in the literature for MSK or for orthopedics, there, there is not a study, at least not one that I've seen, that shows that comparing an activated and a non-activated PRP makes a better difference for healing. So what that means is that people are activating things based on good theories but maybe not based on good evidence. And so you might ask your physician, if you're considering a treatment like this, whether he activates his PRP or not and why. Lastly, there's also an idea about pH, or basically what the acidity of the environment is. And so that matters because when we draw PRP from a person, we use it in a sterile chamber and we put it into the centrifuge to process. But we don't want that blood to clot inside of the centrifuge. And so most of the time, if you draw this blood, it's going to be out of the body maybe 30 minutes or so, give or take, depending on you know the processing time and the preparation and the sterile procedure. And so that's enough time for blood to clot unless you add an anticoagulant. And so typically people use an anticoagulant like ACDA or something else, and that influences how acidic the solution then becomes. So some people propose that you'll then need to add bicarbonate as a buffer because this can reduce the acidity, especially if you're using anesthesia like lidocaine or something to numb the tissue before you give the PRP. That can affect the outcome. But other people have actually written that the acidic environment can be helpful and can help the PRP to release things that that it should be releasing. So this debate continues, but basically because of this, I would just reinforce the point that there is discrepancies in the way that physicians prepare PRP at bedside, and it's led to difficulty with understanding whether or not outcomes are attributed to the kind of PRP that's made, or is it just because PRP is not helpful for whatever type of 
pathology that we're talking about. So lastly, I just want to include a few things about who is not eligible. So when we find patients are on medications that affect platelet degranulation, so aspirin and non-steroid anti-inflammatories probably being the biggest examples, those things will compromise the way that PRP works. And so if somebody comes to our clinic and we talk with them about whether or not they're a candidate for PRP, we're quite deliberate about making sure that they're off for at least a week beforehand and at least a week after, but ideally as long as they're able to. So it depends on who you talk to. People have different protocols for how long they want people off aspirin or non-steroid anti-inflammatory, but those impair the healing response, and that's the idea behind why we would prohibit them. Lastly, I'll give you a short list of things that PRP is known to treat in the literature, and then in future episodes, we'll actually discuss what these things have the best evidence for. So probably the most well-studied tendons that heal with PRP are tennis elbow or the common extensor tendon and also the gluteus medius tendon on the outside of the hip. A couple of other uh, reviews show people treating the patellar tendon across the knee or the Achilles tendon, which has some mixed results along with the rotator cuff. There are some people who have studied uh, using PRP to treat the patellar tendon or the hamstring tendons if used to put in an ACL graft. Haven't seen a lot of data that shows that that is better functionally, although the graft may look better on the MRI in a six-month period. Haven't seen functional data to suggest that's better. Good data coming from Lugo Podesta about the use in the UCL, or basically the tendon that sits across the elbow in a lot of our throwing athletes. There's some good data coming for high ankle sprains, and some data showing that for knee arthritis, it's better than hyaluronic acid, or, or people often abbreviate that a gel shot, a roostercomb for short. Some evidence that it's worked well in cartilage defects in the ankle and also with intradiscal injections or injections into the discs of the lumbar spine. So that's a brief overview of what is so complicated about PRP and what we use it for and how we get it. Thanks so much for joining us for our second episode of the Orthobiologics Podcast. Again, I am your host, Trevor Turner, MD, RMSK, and you can check us out on Facebook or YouTube or go ahead and sign on to our website at georgiabonajoint.org if you have further questions. Thanks very much.